Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello! And today we are bringing you another Spookster Club Vault release. This episode today is the Amityville Murders, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But this case may have popped up for y'all recently in the news because on March 12th, Ronald DeFeo Jr. actually passed away at the age of 69. He was in police custody. At this point, he was at the Albany Medical Center. He was taken there on February 2nd. I really didn't see too much on what the situation was with his health at that time. But yeah, so if you've seen this pop up, that would be why. But let's go ahead and get into this episode. Today, we have decided to pick something that's mainly true crime, but also a little spooky. We are going to dive into the Amityville murders today, and we're going to go based on the actual story, not so much the movie made up fictional stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We figured y'all are probably familiar with that. So basically, I am going to go ahead and cover kind of a little bit of background on the DeFeo family and go into the murders. And then Jessica is going to pick things up from the confession. So if you somehow aren't familiar with this case, which I would feel like would be very, very few people. In 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr., a.k.a. Butch, he shot and killed his parents and four siblings while they were asleep. Some of you guys might be familiar with the case as well, but like I said, there's so there's so many movies. There's so many Amityville movies. They've done so many remakes. It's crazy. It's true. And there's multiple books. There's all kinds of stuff and things like that. But before I get to that grisly night, day, <laughs> like depending on what time of day you want to go with, sidebar, sidebar, guys, you probably will hear Mr. Cricket friend in this episode. So here we are. Hopefully this should be the last one. <laughs> yeah. I had to put my super duper ear blocking things on because I can't even concentrate. Yeah. So sorry, guys, but this should be the last one that uh, he pops into, hopefully. Okay. So like I said, I'm going to give y'all a bit of background on Ronald DeFeo Jr. and his family and all of that stuff. And to avoid any confusion, I'm just going to refer to him as Butch. So I'm not like Ronald Jr., Ronald Sr., this Ronald, that Ronald, and confusing the shit out of you. So Butch was born on September 26, 1951 to Ronald Sr. and Louise DeFeo. He was the oldest of five children. His siblings' names were Don, Allison, Mark, and John. 
And as expected, Butch's childhood wasn't all rainbows and sunshine. It was pretty shitty. Growing up, he was overweight, and in turn, he got bullied a lot for that while he was in school. Kids would call him names like The Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Porkchop. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, he also did not have the best home life either. So Ron Sr. was described as a hot-tempered person, and he was also abusive. Butch being the oldest boy, he kind of took the brunt of the abuse a lot. And this would come up later in the murder trial because one of the witnesses was his uncle, Michael Bragante Jr., and he would testify and tell the court about, like, an incident that happened when Butch was only two years old. He said, quote, We were all sitting down in the basement watching TV and, I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. End quote. So obviously not good if he's willing to do that kind of shit in front of people. Right. Also, during his early teen years, it's noted that Luis and Ron split up for a short period of time. It's not super clear as to why, but I'm guessing because of how, like, shitty of a person he probably was. But they would get back together and then they would have John in 1965. Also during this time, that's when they moved from where they were originally, which was Brooklyn, New York, over to Amityville, which is a part of Long Island, still in New York for people outside the U.S. Also, on top of that, there was a, I feel like probably, I don't know, this is me assuming, but like maybe some family riff or some animosity because everywhere I was reading, they kept mentioning how the infamous Amityville house that we know about Ronald didn't pay for. It was actually paid for by Luis's dad, his father-in-law. Yes. And the house itself is a three-story Dutch colonial, and it was built in 1925. The windows up top are described as the house's eyes, especially when you get into, like, the demon stuff kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But this was actually a common thing with those style of homes. Like, they all were just formatted that way. But also, on top of essentially being in debt to his father-in-law for him paying for the house, he also worked for him. He was the service manager at the dad's car dealership. Hmm. And as Butch grew up and entered into his teen years, he started getting into drugs, more specifically LSD and heroin, at the age of 17. And he also, as expected, got into drinking as well. And also when he was a young or an older teen, his behavior started changing and it was said that he began lashing out a lot more and was described as violent by his friends and family. Damn. His family did try to get him some help. They tried to take him to a psychiatrist to get treatment and things like that. This didn't last long, though, because Butch thought he didn't need help. So he just stopped going. And I hate to say it, but his family's essentially became hardcore enablers because they tried to use money and like high priced items to, quote, help him. Mm. They even bought him a $14,000 speedboat. And he was also given a sought after job is what they said at the dealership. And with said good job, you know, he got paid weekly and he was not held accountable. He still got his set amount, whether he showed up, whether he actually worked, didn't matter. He'd still get his set salary. I mean, if you're working for your grandfather and your father, I think he's being more paid for his family name. 
Oh, yeah. That's what they did. They just threw money at him and threw stuff at him. Right. And obviously with his checks and stuff, he put it into his car, which no surprise, his parents bought that for him. He didn't buy it. Drugs, alcohol and, you know, things like that. So then flash forward to 1974, and he thought he wasn't making enough money and decided to take that problem into his own hands. One of his responsibilities for his position was to take the deposit to the bank. So in late October of that year, he had a deposit trip to make with more than $20,000 in cash. And Butch decided to plan a fake robbery with a friend. And he convinced this said friend to go along with it because he agreed to split the money with him, like evenly, 50-50. I mean, 10K to like rob your buddy makes sense. Mm -hmm. And apparently their plan like went totally fine. Like it went just how they mapped it out until the cops came to the dealership to talk to him about it. And when he was questioned, Butch was said to have, quote, exploded into rage. So, you know, it's... A little bit of a red flag because you're like, oh, God. Right. And the police thought so, too. So they had a feeling he was lying. And then they had asked him to come into the station to check out some mug shots of possible suspects. Of course, he was like, fuck no, I'm not doing that and refused to go. And then it was said that Ron Sr. at this point also began to, like, suspect that Butch, you know, had committed the robbery or had some kind of hand in it. But when he tried to talk to Butch about it, all that came out of that was this big heated argument and then Butch threatened to kill him. And his alarming behavior doesn't just stop there with verbal threats because it's said that Butch had went on a hunting trip with a friend and threatened to kill him too. Wow. Yeah, but then the next day, acted like nothing even happened, acted totally normal, like just total 180. Oh my God, peoples. Yeah. And on top of that, he came back for Ron and decided that he was going to try to shoot him one day while he was in an argument with Luis. And he even went so far that he actually pulled the trigger of his shotgun. But Ron wasn't injured or killed because apparently the weapon had malfunctioned. So he got lucky that day. And of course, like if someone's trying, if your kid is trying to shoot you or anyone's trying to shoot you, you're gonna be like, what the actual fuck? And it was just said, like, he was so shocked and just like, what the hell? That basically he was like, okay, we're done fighting, Luis. Like, <laughs> end of conversation. But with all of that, we are gonna go ahead and jump to the day of the murder. So that happened on November 13th, 1974. And since we do know how things end up, I'm just gonna kind of walk us through the timeline of events of how it played out before I hand it over to Jess and all of that good stuff. So the murders actually took place super, super early that morning at about 3.15 a.m. is what they estimate. Butch used a 35 Marlin rifle as the murder weapon, and he would end up killing his parents and his siblings over the course of just 15 minutes. There are theories on if he acted alone and things like that, but I won't get into that right now. Probably talk about that later. He does later admit to the police and it comes up with autopsies and stuff. He did drug them the night before or that night as well or night before technically. And then after killing his family, he showered, he collected up his bloody clothes and the murder weapon and headed into work. And on his way in, he dumped the clothes and the weapon in a storm drain and he would later be found in the Amityville Creek, which was right behind their property, like right fucking there. So they found it. 
And he was said to have gotten to work by 6 a.m. And once he was there, they were like, well, where's your dad? He's supposed to work today. That kind of thing. He just played stupid. He's like, I don't know. You know, like, let me call the house and see. Of course, no one's going to answer because they're all fucking dead. Mm -hmm. So around noon, he ended up leaving work for the day because he was bored. And from then till about six, he was hanging out with different friends and he basically was establishing an alibi because he would also make random ass comments that they're like, what the fuck? To them being like, I haven't heard from anybody at home. I can't reach anybody. Like, how weird, you know, like things like that. Trying to plant little things. But then apparently... He decided, okay, it's time for something different. So at 6.30 p.m., he went over to Henry's Bar, which is basically like a small town tavern type of thing. Also, I'm assuming it still is a pretty small area, but back then especially, it was a very small town. So most people knew each other type of thing. And so, of course, like some of his friends were there and things like that. And he was said to have ran in and he shouted, you've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. And one of the people that was there was his best friend named Robert Bobby Kelsky. Mm -hmm. Basically, as soon as he busted in and said that, people who else were there were like, Bobby ran over to him because Butch had fallen on his knees and was like hysterically crying and asking for help and, you know, things like that. And he said to Bobby, Bobby, you've got to help me. Somebody shot my mother and father. And then Bobby had asked him, are you sure they're not asleep? And then Butch said, no, I saw them up there. And then after this, Bobby was like, we need to go over to the house and see what the fuck is going on. You know, like, we're not just going to sit here and freak out. Let, let's go see what's happening. So them two and some other guys, they were named John Altieri, Joey Yesowit, Al Saxton, and William. I'm not even going to say his last name because it's crazy. But basically, <laughs> all those <laughs> all those dudes loaded up and went over to the DeFeo home. Oh, and the William guy, by the way, is the owner of the bar. So Scorta Magilia is his last name. Ah. There, I said it actually. First try. Good job. But there you go. That's that's the last name. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Anyway, so the six of them got into Butch's car, which was a 1970 Blue Buick Electra 225. And apparently Butch was so distraught he could not drive, so he climbed into the back, and Bobby drove the car. So once they got there, it was noted that the house was completely quiet, except they could hear the family dog barking, and his name was Shaggy. He was tied up in the kitchen, and it was noted that this was a common type of thing for the family to do, because apparently he wasn't completely housebroken, so it was, you know, easier to clean up accidents and stuff on, like, tile or whatnot versus carpet, so they kept him in there, I guess. That story holds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So the group immediately ran upstairs to the master bedroom first because, you know, Butch was like, my parents were shot. And they were all friends with the family. So they, you know, they had been there. They were familiar with, like, the layout of the house. They knew where to go kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's when they would start to find everybody. And they were all dead. So everyone was laying on their stomachs in their beds when they were found. At the time of their deaths, the DeFeos were the following ages. Ron Sr. was 43. Luis was 42. Don was 18. Allison was 13. Mark was 12. And John was just nine. So sad. 
And the crime scene photos are out there if you would want to look at them or you're curious or anything like that. There was just a lot of blood. I will say that. So they are pretty graphic. Yes. Even though they're face down, is still kind of graphic. And on one of the websites I was looking on, I wasn't expecting to see like autopsy type of photos because mm-hmm. like one was like after they flipped over one of them and it was just like, oh, God, like, you know what I mean? Caught me off guard. So Ron Sr. was shot two times in the back. The entries were noted to be by the neck and they'd go through his kidney and his spine. And the coroner would later say that Ron also appeared to have tried to move up like in the bed before he died. So he was more than likely living for a few seconds to several minutes before he died from his injuries. Louise is noted to have been shot two times as well. One enters and leaves her left wrist. The second one ended up destroying her lung, diaphragm, rib cage, and liver. And interesting with this one, they said that she walked to the door and died about 10 minutes after the shooting. But like I just mentioned, everyone was in the bed. And how she was found, too, was a little different. She was actually completely covered up with like a different blankets, like one of those old fleece ones that have like the like silk on the outside. It was an orange blanket. Oh. So I'm thinking if that's accurate, Butch had to have moved her and positioned her back. Right. Mark and John were both noted to be shot at close range, less than two inches away from them, from their bodies. The bullets penetrated the heart, lungs, diaphragm, and liver of both of them. And John's spinal cord is also noted to be severely affected from the shots. There is notes that Allison was awake and had time to see the muzzle of the gun before being shot in the head. And the bullet would go through her skull and everything and hit the wall and then bounce down to the ground, which would also make me think he probably positioned her too. And then lastly, Dawn, she was shot at close range as well and noted less than three inches in the bottom of her neck. And the bullet would exit through her left ear. And autopsy confirmed here that, you know, they had been drugged at dinner. It was said to be like barbiturates type of drugs in their system type of thing. But it was also proved during the autopsy that like Allison did wake up. And Butch later says during his investigation that he like his story changes a lot, you'll see. (laughs) But he says that Dawn had awakened him and asked what was the problem. And he told her to lie down again. And that's when he shot her. There's a lot of stuff with that, but. That's basically where they're at at this point. So kind of go back to them initially finding them. After they found all the DeFeos dead in their beds, Joe Yesowit called 911. And originally, the police believed that this was mob-related. So Butch had this story that... Louis Fellini was the one who killed their family. So they actually didn't take Butch in necessarily to question him at first. They took him in for protection because they're like, oh, God, if this dude's running around killing all these people, he's going to come back for you. Yeah, probably shouldn't be here. Right. And basically, he said that the reason that Fellini killed the DeFeos was that he had beef with them. That's basically what he said. He said that he had taken his car into the dealership to get worked on and things like that. Things didn't go so well. And there was like a riff. So boom, fucking dead. And he also, you know, in like his original statement and stuff, he was like, he said he thought his family was alive and well when he went to work that morning. So he didn't worry about it. They were just asleep, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, luckily, Butch was not a good liar or very smart with his planning with this. So while they're doing, you know, their investigation and stuff, they find the murder weapon box. 
in the DeFeo house. Oops. They, like I said, they also find the murder weapon in the fucking creek thing. But they also, of course, you know, start checking into Fellini and seeing like what his story is and what's the deal. And his alibi checked out. He was actually out of state. He wasn't even there when this happened. So whoops. Butch started like changing his story. And he was like, well, actually, I did know they were dead. And what happened was that Fellini came to the house and put a gun to my head and drug me around while he killed everybody in my family. And basically just bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And then the following day, Butch would actually end up confessing just one day after the murder. And it said that he finally broke down saying, quote, once I started, I just couldn't stop. And it went so fast. With that, though, to get more into this kind of shit, I'm going to hand it to Jessica now. Yes. So to kind of finish that thought with Tara, he did admit that. He said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He also admitted that he took a bath, redressed, and then went through like a detail of like how he like discarded the evidence, like the gun and his clothes and stuff like that. One of the reasons that they kind of pressed him at first, not only is his was his story changing, but like they took him in within like hours of them finding the bodies into protective custody because he talked about this mob hit. So he's been in police custody and they're talking with him. And again, it wasn't like an interrogation. It was an interview. He was being interviewed about like what he knew of the family and like his story started changing. But one of the things that kind of tipped them a little bit over was the fact he did what I think all idiots do in this situation is they talk about insurance policies. So his father has just died and Butch starts talking about his father's insurance policy. And like he asks questions to the police about how does he get his father's insurance policy, which then triggers the police to be like, dude, this kid is not a, like, he, and here's the thing. It was a small community. So these police officers already knew who he was, obviously with the whole robbery thing, but also with the fact that like it was a small town. so. They were like, you know, he was known to the people, his like family and friends and neighbors as they all they kind of described him as like a punk druggie who just like fought with everyone. So this is his reputation. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, question, question. How do I get money? Though that they don't know the motive. So basically, this was a very quick trial. It started on October 14th. He was found guilty on no- on November 21st of 1975. So a little over a month. And you have to think about like, in my opinion, they were like, we're not going into the Thanksgiving break with this dude. <laughs> yeah, let's get this shit done. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing is, yes, people testified about the abusiveness in the home, but it was like on both sides too. Like some were like, oh my God, Ron was so abusive to his family. And then others were like, I never heard Ron raise his voice to anyone or do anything. And so it was kind of like this weird duality, like it depended on who knew them. I think like there was a neighborhood kid who was like, I would never see Don yell at his kids. Like they do stupid things and he'd never yell at them. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who were like, oh my God, if like if one of the kids broke a dish, like Ron would beat them in the next Tuesday type thing. And that he and Luis were always fighting and it was really abusive. And so this is what the kids were modeled, you know? Mm-hmm. So really. Butch's only defense at this point is that he is insane and that it was self-defense. 
basically his attorney, William Weber. And if you know anything about the Amity, like, because we're not talking about like what happens with the Lutzes. Like, that's not what this is about. This isn't Mm -hmm. about like the people who move in and the ghosts. This is about the murder. But William Weber actually plays a huge part in that storyline, too, Mm -hmm. which is weird because he's Butch's fucking defense attorney. Most people would be like, why? I don't get it. So he actually, William Weber became known as the defense for hire guy. If you needed to hire a defense attorney, then no questions asked. He was your dude. He's like the weirdest attorney I've ever heard of. Basically, Butch was saying, I mean, after the whole mob story and then that he killed his family, he basically said that he was hearing voices and they were the voices of his family members plotting to kill him. So he killed his family. And basically, they knew that they couldn't do like some sort of weird paranormal twist on this, especially because like the whole shit with the Lutzes hadn't happened yet. But they were saying that because he was a drug user, his mind was altered. So he was Mm -hmm. in like a drug psychosis or something stupid like that. Where I mean, which could be he could have been tripping really hard on LSD and hear voices and killed his family. So William Weber was like, I got to get this guy in there. So he admits, like in, in the documentary I watched on him or on this case, he's like, yeah, I got my buddy, Daniel Schwartz. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't know if you should be telling people that Daniel, who is supposed to be like this renowned doctor to come in and save your ass, is your buddy. <laughs> Problematic. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> anyway, so Dr. Schwartz or Daniel Schwartz comes in and he looks. And he basically says that, yes, Butch is insane. He has heavy drug usage. This is self-defense. He's got an antisocial disorder. He can't tell right from wrong. And they're like, boom, boom, boom. We're going to win this because it's the insanity. Like, what person in their right mind is a family annihilator? Like, they're like, he's insane. But... The prosecution was like, you know what? We see you a psychiatrist and we're going to bring in someone who's even more well-known, which is Dr. Harold Zolan. And he goes, okay, I give you that Butch used a lot of heroin and LSD. I get that. I acknowledge and support the fact that he has an antipersonality disorder. However, he maintained that at the time of his actions, Butch was aware of what he was doing and that it was wrong. Because typically people who truly kill with ins- like because of insanity, they don't have the wherewithal afterwards to try to cover it up. It's always like they're caught wandering the streets covered in blood type thing. Not he went on with his day and pretended everything was fine. <laughs> right. He went to work. He went out for some drinks. He hung out with people. Then he went to check on his family, which we probably assume he didn't actually check on his family. No, it's just like, oh, someone's going to notice they're not coming around. So time to be like, they're dead. <laughs> oh, they, yeah. What happened? <laughs> right. So on November 21st, 1975, Butch was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder. And then on December 4th, 1975, Judge Thomas Stark sentenced him to six concurrent life sentences. It's like 25 to life. So he's not getting the death penalty. Mind you, like, throughout the trial and everything, like, some people did stand up and say things for him. Like, you know, hey, he's a good guy. He's misunderstood. He uses too much drugs. And other people were like, he's a punk-ass bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go with that camp. (laughs) Right? 
Currently, Butch is, he's still alive. He's 68 years old and he is in the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. Now, I just want to say this. (laughs) His stories did not stay the same even after he was sentenced. No. (laughs) Motherfucker changes with the wind. (laughs) Truth. (laughs) Like, okay, so like Tara said, all of the victims were found laying face down, which is weird. And it was without struggle, which we know is because they were drugged. But they weren't moved, like, anti-mortem or post-mortem. Like, they were just there. Like, I should say they probably moved anti-mortem, like, he flipped them over type thing. But, like, it wasn't like he took them outside and shot them and brought them inside type thing. Another weird thing is that through the investigation, not a single fucking neighbor could be like, hey, I heard some gunshots. And he's using, like, a rifle, which makes some noise. And they realized that the gun was not fitted for a sound suppressor. So it's like, what the fuck was the neighborhood doing right exactly and i'm assuming it's i don't know because you know how like once info comes out people are like oh yeah i saw this and i heard that because it was like more recent articles were like some neighbors later came to say they thought they maybe heard gunshots i'm like bitch where the fuck were you in the beginning no you didn't I always think those are like when people start questioning the neighbors or like, how could people not hear a gunshot? They're like, oh, yeah, no, I heard a gunshot. No, And um, I mean, right off the gate, the neighbors were like, we didn't hear a gunshot. All we could hear was the dog barking. Right. And I was like, OK. And we do know that he did drug the family. So that would be what the hell like no struggle thing would do. Mm. And I mean, just a lot of things with Butch's story never line up. From the moment he started talking, it was like he was grasping at anything. It's like he was so desperate not to get caught or it not to be his fault that he was going to try anything. And here's the thing. Like years later, he started telling different stories. So in 1986, he came out to Newsday. He get like gave an interview to Newsday. I think it's like a magazine. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like seeing it, but I don't know if it's still around. Yeah. Anyway, so he gave it. To, he gave an, an interview, and basically what he said is that Butch's sister Dawn killed her father, and that Louise was so upset over this, she killed all of her children, and that Ronald had come home right at this time and basically killed his mom. Because of what she had done. But supposedly he wasn't even living at home, that he was married and living with this woman by the name of Geraldine Gates, and that he had come home because Louise had told him that Dawn and her father were fighting. So he was coming home to like help it, and that he didn't want one, he took all the blame because he didn't think his uncle and his mother's father would appreciate him talking about the family being like his dad being violent and that they would kill him because of the fact that they were connected to the mob, which his uncle was part of a um, well-known organized crime family in the area. I'm sure their crime was just tax evasion. <laughs> If no one laughs at that, like, literally, it's that's what Al Capone got caught for. Yeah. It's a very smart joke, people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sorry. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was like, I said it, and you, like, laughed. I was like, oh, wait, maybe we'll not, not, might not get this joke. Anyway. <laughs> also, Butch said that he wasn't alone when he got to the house, that his brother-in-law, which I don't even understand, his brother-in-law, Richard Ramondo, was with him and could collaborate his story. 
And then for four years, nothing else happened. In 1990, Butch filed a 440 motion to have his conviction vacated. He's changed his story up again. He said that his sister Dawn and an unknown assailant who fled from the home upon Butch arriving, mind you, still with Richard, who nobody can fucking find, (laughs) that when Butch and Richard got there, this unknown assailant ran away from the house, but that Don had committed all the murders and that he and Don were fighting over the rifle and the rifle accidentally went off, that he only committed one murder and it was by accident. So he does not need to be in prison because he did not mean to kill his sister. It was a boo-boo. Mind you, he's still stating that he was married to Geraldine Gates at the time and that he was with his brother-in-law, Richard. Fun fact, Butch and Geraldine were not married at the time of the murders. No. She was actually married to some other dude and lived in upstate New York. Details. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> okay, I like laugh at this because my first thought in all of this is like, do they not, does he not think that they're not going to check public record? Like marriage license or public records. Right. They're the police. They know that they have access to that like more readily than we have access to that. Also. They've never found a Richard Romando anywhere. I'm sure there's one. I'm sure there's a person out there with that name, but nowhere ever connected to Geraldine Gates and certainly not connected to Butch. So they're like, you're one witness nobody can find. And I'm sure like there's been like, "Mm, it's because the mob. But like, also, if Richard really existed, he probably would have come close, come up and been like, hey, I was with him. But fucking details. And mind you, Butch has been married three times all after incarceration. Geraldine and he were married for a few years. So, like, (laughs) they weren't even married when he first made up the lie in 86, I don't think. Yeah, they weren't married then. (laughs) Which I'm like, dude, if you're going to lie, at least lie correctly now. Like, we're married. And then he was married to two other women. And most recently, he was married to a woman from 2012 to 2015. He and Geraldine divorced in 93 and he got remarried in 94 and divorced in 99. I don't really want to give women who marry murderers a lot of, you know, platform here because something's off. We're not with it. We're not with it. Mm -mm. So his most recent story that he made up came in 2000, November 30th, 2000. So 20 years ago, people. He met with a man named Rick Osana, and Rick Osana wrote a book called The Night the DeFeos Died, and it was published in 2002. And basically, Osana said that they spoke for about six hours, and Butch denied the whole thing. <laughs> he was like, I never talked to him. Sorry, I forgot to finish up my the other story. So basically what happened with the 440 motion is that he was fucking denied. Same judge, Judge Shark, denied the motion saying, I find the testimony of the defendant overall to be false and fabricated. His testimony that during the fall of 1974, he was married and lived with his wife and child at Long Beach, New York, is incredible and not worthy of belief. He produced no corroborating evidence in this regard. Another reason for my disbelief of the defendant's testimony is demonstrated by the the consideration of several portions of trial testimony. He signed a lengthy and written statement describing in details his activities. In that statement, he said that he 
lived with his family at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville and that he worked for his father, that he usually went to and from work with his father and that he was ill and stayed home on November 12th, 1974, and that he was on probation for having stolen an outboard engine and had an appointment to see his probation officer in Amityville on that very afternoon. Defendant's girlfriend, mind you, the beginning of this paragraph or this sentence or statement, he's talking about the fact that he's like, he wasn't married. The defendant's girlfriend, Mindy Weiss, testified that she began dating the defendant in June 1974 and was with him frequently in the summer and the fall. Stark further declared the defendant's testimony that he did not shoot and kill the members of his family is likewise incredible and not worthy of belief. Like, that's a powerful fucking statement. Mm -hmm. I have read some of these like judges who were like, nah, I just don't care. I don't believe you. Like this, this judge was like, look, not only are you using the like your storyline is that you were living on Long Island, not Long Island, Long Branch, away from your family, that you had a wife and a child, but like, it's not even true. Right. So basically, the third story is that Butch met Osana and Osana wrote The Night That the DeFeos Died. It's just like he's changing the story. And there was a piece of evidence that was found is the police found traces of unburned gunpowder on Don's nightgown, which could technically... It would say that she did fire the firearm. So basically his story is that she killed all of these people. This this one little bit of evidence, you know, shows this and that he basically retaliated. So it's kind of the same story, but now he's got some sort of like weird evidence with it. It also could be the fact that like and how they made the claim is Tara mentioned how close that gun was fired from her three inches. So there's a chance that it got on her her nightgown because of how close in proximity it was to her. Mm-hmm. Also, he was trying to say that they used a muzzle and that's what or like so that no one could hear it and all this stuff. Nobody fucking believes that shit whatsoever. And basically, you know, there's so many crazy things that happen throughout this case. And it's just like he's not going down, if that makes sense. I don't know if we've heard the last of him, but also it's in Rick's book. It does mention that Butch didn't even meet Geraldine until 1985, that they married in 1989 and divorced in 1983. You mean 1993? Yeah, that. You said 83. I know. Damn it. <laughs> I was like, that's backwards. <laughs> Time travel. That uh, <laughs> they divorced in 1993. And basically, the one thing I like about Rick's book or the fact that it's been made into like a docudrama and shit like that is that he wasn't like how a lot of people are out there like trying to be like, ooh, be my friend and tell me your side of the story. And this is how it really went. He was like, I'm going to do the fact checking and take things and try to see what's true and what isn't true. So that made me happy. Mm-hmm. I think the right person is in prison. Agreed. There is the theory that Don helped and that he convinced Don to help him and that he betrayed her by killing her in the end. Mm-hmm. That she killed the other siblings mm-hmm. and then he killed the parents and her. I think there was this like theory that like no matter what, the parents were going to be killed. Because mm-hmm. there is the theory that like the reason that everyone was sedated is because they were only going to kill the parents 
And if everyone was sedated, then they could say that someone came in and killed them. But then that like Butch or Don or whoever did the killing liked it and just kept going. But the fact that the parents were always the main targets. And then after the trial, everything, the house gets sold. And then the other crazy shit happens that we'll talk about probably at a later date. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys want us to dive into their story, we're happy to revisit that at a another bonus episode in future's time. So leave us a comment if you would like to hear about that. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, we are going to go ahead and wrap things up. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any theories or extra tidbits, because, you know, there's all kinds of crazy shit about Butch and all this, uh, feel free to drop a comment. We will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.